Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Mark Solomon is a colorectal surgeon at Advent Health in Orlando, Florida. We got to talk to Dr. Solomon about his passion for robotic colorectal surgery and where he sees robotics going in the future. We then went on a deep dive on the use of video in surgery, from how to edit surgical videos to how Dr. Solomon incorporates his fantastic videos into resident education. Check out all of Dr. Solomon's amazing videos on his YouTube channel. Links are in the show notes. Dr. Solomon, we, we've been so excited to have you on Cold Steel leading up to this. And we can't thank you enough for, for being on. Um, for, for some of the Canadian listeners, maybe, who don't know you as, as well or at least follow, follow you as closely as we do, could you tell us sort of where you grew up, what your training pathway has been, and how you ended up in your current uh, position? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot. And Chad and, and Amir, I really do appreciate you guys uh, inviting me to this this podcast. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but yeah, I was born and raised in Tallahassee, Florida, which is the capital of uh, Florida here in the United States. And um, I did my undergrad uh, in Florida and then medical school also in Florida and went to Birmingham, Alabama, which is the deep, deep south for, for residency. And um, and I was kind of bit with the minimally invasive bug when I was in Birmingham uh, just because we did so much bariatric surgery. And I got turned on also to um, to um, colorectal surgery at the time. So I ended up going back to Florida in Orlando uh, to the Colon and Rectal Clinic of Orlando, which is where I did my fellowship. And actually there was, it's a program of five fellows. And then I did my, my colorectal fellowship there and actually was hired on as faculty to be the MIS surgeon for the group. And uh, I was there for 10 years and uh, built up, I think, a pretty good uh, robotic colorectal curriculum and, and also the MIS side of the, the program. And, uh, and I actually was recently recruited. Um, in fact, actually, I just began in August of this year to Advent Health, which is a, a large uh, multi-state um, uh, hospital system, which is, has one of the, the main uh, hubs here in Orlando. So I was recruited into the um, uh, Advent Health System, and I'm actually now the, uh, I have two titles with the Advent Health System, which I'm the uh, Program Medical Director for the Digestive Health and Surgery Institute for Colorectal Surgery. And basically what that means is I'm in charge of colorectal surgery for the 17 Central Florida hospitals um, in, in terms of research, in terms of education, um, uh, the um, recruitment, hiring, firing effectively of surgeons, just think of it almost like the division chief role for the, for the 17 hospitals. And, and a lot, of, a lot has to do with business and strategy, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then the, um, um, and then the other side of it is I'm also the department chairman for colorectal surgery, which is an elected position. Um, and it's elected by the medical staff within the department. So it's two 
separate but similar entities. One is the Department of uh, Colorectal Surgery, which is run by the medical staff who are not employed by the hospital. And then my other role is actually being employed by the hospital to develop colorectal surgery service line throughout the entirety of the uh, Central Florida system. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a summation of all it is right there. Congratulations on your, your ongoing success. I, I noticed on your bio that you speak uh, fluent Arabic. Uh, what's your, your background with that, and uh, h- how do you know fluent Arabic? Yeah, it's... Um, um, it, my, my parents are, are Egyptian, uh, and they were, they were born and raised, of course, in Egypt, and they immigrated to the United States, man, it's close to 50 years now, I think. And, um, and, um, so they speak Egyptian Arabic at home and it's specific Egyptian Arabic. <laughs> Guys, um, so funny story when I, um, went to a college, um, you know, I spoke Arabic at home, you know, conversational Arabic, no problem stuff at church, no big deal. And then I decided I had to take a foreign language credit. So I went to University of Florida and I said, you know what? I'm so good at Arabic, uh, even though I was born and raised in, in Florida. I'm so good at it. Let me just try to, you know, uh, exempt myself from this foreign language credit. So I went to the to the Arabic department and then I said, yeah, I don't really need this. I just need the credit. Just sign off on me. And then literally the lady, uh, uh, the professor of the class, I'll never forget her, Ida Bemia, uh, looked at me and she made me read a a paragraph and I did. She's like, Mark, you read on the level of a kindergartner. She's like, There's no way. So I think I speak fluent Arabic, but it's like, I guess I speak fluent relative to a kindergartner. That's awesome. I actually, when I was uh, finished high school, I spent uh, four and a half months uh, in Egypt uh, learning Arabic. And uh, I quickly learned that there's a, dif- a difference between Egyptian and uh, and classical Arabic. So, uh, so I feel a little bit of your pain. Uh, and it's uh, I, I love the, the idea of uh, an Egyptian boy in, in Florida. That's quite an awesome uh, uh, place for, for your parents to land. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that transition has been like uh, switching institutions and, and kind of what the thought process is in making a tough decision like that? Because uh, it sounds like you had a great thing going with your, your previous job and, and now uh, going to Advent Health uh, obviously is is a big change. What what goes into making a decision like that in sort of ten years into your career? Yeah, no, that, that's man, that's a really good question. And and I'm you know, I think this is it's good for the viewership of this to listen to it too, because, you know, I had it all, right? You know, I was a full partner, fully vested partner in a highly successful private practice. I mean, it's doing um six, eight colectomies a week, hundred patients in the office a week, um, you know, 10, 20 anorectal cases a week. I mean, volume was not an issue. Um, great partners. I mean, they were my faculty. They were my attendings. And so they're close to me. We kind of had everything. You know, For me, though, 10 years into the career, I almost got that itch in which I was wondering what's next. Um, for me, you know, it was it being private practice. Although we, we were academically productive, um, we had fellows that we trained, we had five fellows per year. Um, there was only so much that you can do in a day without additional support. Um, so if there's research endeavors that were interesting, it was tough, you know, it's very difficult to get funding for that. Um, if there was, for example, um, lectures that needed to be, um, you were invited to give a lecture, uh, in a, in a different state. I mean, that's time away from the practice and that's, you know, days that you're not getting, um, you know, getting revenue for effectively. And so, and that, you know, I had fantastic support from my group. However, you know, when when I looked at myself and where I was at this point, 
I felt like there was something missing. And I think that thing that was missing was a more formal leadership position. And I had always had a keen interest in clinical uh, and administrative leadership, but with a hybrid in still practicing surgery. And uh, Advent Health actually had tried to recruit me um, several years prior to build a robotics program. But I, I, you know, wasn't the timing wasn't right. And I didn't feel right about it. I was happy where I was. But, you know, when they came to me with this with this leadership role, um, with great faculty, fantastic support, and um, the stars kind of aligned and the timing was good for me that um, I made the made the transition. Difficult decision, um, a bitter pill to swallow for some extent because I'd been, you know, born and raised and bred in the private practice world. But, you know, I think that was some of the things that helped um, prompt the recruit to some extent and also uh, that helped breed me effectively for the new role because there's so much leadership on it. And um, being the fellowship program director of my former program, that you know that that kind of helped in the leadership side of things, but also um, as as kind of the the kind of lead in a lot of things for the practice side of the hospital, you know, almost bringing the private practice mentality to how the office runs in terms of efficiency and metrics and um, um, cost effectiveness and, and really just kind of running, I don't want to say a lean, but running a kind of a lean and efficient machine is what uh, what was a really um, um, appealing uh, to, to to those that were recruiting me to it. I think we've had a, thank God, a pretty good and quick uh, impact. There were some, so, you know, phenomenally um, open-minded and very, very receptive um, leaders there when I showed up. And they've been they've been really really great in terms of welcoming me over. So it's been been a fantastic transition. And you have some really amazing partners at Advent Health, uh, John Monson, Matthew Albert, to name a few. What has that been like, sort of having partners like like of those that caliber? And, and how is that kind of? I know it's early days still, but how do how do you think that sort of shifts the way you think about things and um, the way you do things? Yeah, no, it's a good question because. You know, I have been, it's interesting, I've been in direct competition with both John Monson and Matt Albert and George Nassif and Teresa Beshamer, all those in their group number, we're 13 in the group now. We've been in direct competition for the past, you know, decade, but never let it, you know, get in the way of a collegial relationship, friendship, and just, you know, it was really just good camaraderie the entire time. I feel like we were all kind of cut from the same cloth of, you know, we're all interested in, of course, high quality. Um, it's a meritocracy in terms of how well you do in terms of uh, clinical outcomes. We all have a passion for medical education as well as surgical education, as well as pushing the envelope in terms of research, uh, minimally invasive surgery. And, um, you know, specifically John Monson, I mean, he's, you know, uh, the guy's, a, he's a He's a bedrock in the colorectal world. And just having him be here in the city and watching the amount of progress that he's made um, it, within the Advent Health system on the colorectal side of things, just with his leadership acumen and his vision over a relatively short period of time with him being in town was, I mean, absolutely jaw-dropping. So, you know, the recruit also was important to me because I looked at John as a mentor in that regard because just seeing what he was able to accomplish in again in such a short period of time was was phenomenal and then you know being again in the same group as people like Matt Albert and Teresa Debesh and, and 
Justin Kelly and George Nassif and these guys, you know, again, we, we, we all have that same common vision of doing some ridiculously cool cutting edge middle invasive surgery, taking good care of patients, but also having that balancing act of, of also having a good work-life balance and, 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 and also the academic side of things too, was also nice to have. I love seeing you guys uh, interact on, on Twitter and social media and uh, you, you already get the sense of that they're, they're proud to have you on. And, and I, uh, I just love the camaraderie between all of you. Um, this is a good segue. You know, you're talking about doing cool, minimally invasive stuff. And I think one of the things that you're well known for is being a big proponent of robotic colorectal surgery. And you talked about getting inspired by, by your, your home program and their, their bariatric stuff. But can you, can you talk a little bit more about why you're so passionate about robotics in, in colorectal surgery? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I often think, I oftentimes think about that. And I, you know, years ago I gave a lecture and um, my, my two um, childhood heroes were MacGyver and Mr. Uh, what is it? Inspector Gadget. And I always felt like I always, I always had this uh, inclination to kind of, you know, rigging things up and, and kind of thinking through problems. And also I loved, loved, loved tech, always loved tech. And um, I remember when I was like five or 10, I was like, um, my dad was asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was like, I want to be a robotics engineer. And I don't know, I didn't know what, I, what they even meant. Um, but I loved robotics since I was a little kid. And, um, you know, it's funny now, when I was in residency, this, we got this thing called a robot and I never touched it, never sat on the console, but I felt like it was a good marriage between my love for physiology, love for anatomy, and that enthusiasm I have for technology. And, um, and so, I, and really, I just, I don't know exactly what it was, if it was just one thing or just a combination of many, that um, just seeing these slick endoscopic operations being done, you know, invasive cases being done robotically, but just pushing the envelope in terms of tech really, really, really um, got me, um, kind of lit that fire that bug kind of bit me and so it's been really kind of an insatiable appetite from that regards and so pushing the envelope with robotics with advanced minimally invasive tech and also other robotics platforms uh, that are out there is really exciting i mean this is a good time to be a good time to be a surgeon so um was that something it doesn't sound like that was actually something that you maybe were ex, uh, exposed to as much in residency so was that something that you sort of took an interest in and took in passion uh towards and, and uh, developed more on your own? Or is that something that you pursued formal training in? Yeah, no. So, so I saw a robot in residency, like saw it. And then my, my attending, um, I'll never forget, started doing, he like was getting proctored on his cases. And I just watched him do a lap coley, a robot coley. And just looking at the, the, the wrist articulation of the robot, the, the visualization, just the comfort that he's sitting down, the 3D, all that stuff. I was like, I want to do that. Like, that's what it was. But then I graduated like a month later. Uh, rather, I started uh, um, ranking fellowships like a month later. So one of the things that I looked at very specifically was um, for a colorectal fellowship, I wanted to ensure that I went to a program that was able to train me in robotics. And, and I selected the colorectal clinic of Orlando for that express reason. It was one of the highest volume robotics program in the country at the time, which meant that we did about 10 cases per year. And uh, uh, so I ended up doing a lot of um, uh, just self-taught simulation work. A lot of the intuitive reps um, were, were, you know, were kind of 
interested to see because there was never there wasn't a general surgery pathway. There definitely wasn't a colorectal pathway. They were only interested in teaching um, urologists and gynecologists at the time. So I, I actually would would hook up with a um, uh, gynonc surgeon, uh, Veronica Shemp. I'll never I can never thank her enough for letting me as a fellow scrub into her gynonc cases and do. Um, hysterectomies and I was so on the cuff. I had no clue what the anatomy was, but I was still doing it. And it was, it was great. And just, I really just kind of took off from there. I, I mean, I, I think you have to highlight the fact that you clearly had an interest and a passion for something and then just went after it, um, no matter where those opportunities were. So I think that's some, like, that's an important thing that all of our listeners should really kind of pay attention to and, and keep in mind. So now in your practice, is are, do you do all your cases robotically or are there certain cases where you'll go straight six, sticks, so to speak, or how, how does that mix play out? Yeah, you know, I'm fortunate now to have enough robotic access that I'm 100% robotic on the elective stuff. So there's, of course, an occasional emergent case that has to be open or, a, a, you know, a multiply recurrent, multivisceral section that's going to require an open approach. But those, thankfully, are few and far between. So, um, now if I'm doing a case, it's going to be robotic, and if I don't, if I can't do it robotic, it's going to have to basically go open. Uh, the straight sticks are kind of reserved for if I ever have to do, for example, uh, uh, let's say an emergency diverticular resection on the weekend, then usually I go straight six then. But uh, that's really the only time. You know, for for Canadians, we don't really, um, I would say apart from maybe one center, have a really robust robotics program set up for colorectal surgery. I mean, uh, as you say, the urologists and gynecologists do use it in a few select centers, but because of costing issues, uh, most Canadians really don't have access to uh, a robot. So can you describe to us um, what the setup is like, just the logistics in terms of actually running an efficient robotics program? Because one of the things... So I, you know, I've noticed just from watching videos is that it does take some extra time kind of getting things set up and, and getting things docked. So can you describe sort of the key components that are needed to kind of make that uh, program run efficiently? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good question. Very good point, too. I think that the, um, the most important thing to facilitate uh, an efficient system is volume, pure, pure and simple. I think if you do... Um, one hemorrhoidectomy per year, that's going to be a very slow hemorrhoidectomy. If you do 50, 60 hemorrhoidectomies per month, that's a very different story, right? So same thing for robotics. You know, if you're doing one to two cases per year, per month, or whatever the, the cadence and the frequency is, um, those touch points are typically not going to be that efficient. They're going to cost more because you don't haven't quite got the cobwebs out of the system. You don't really know what your routine is going to be yet. Um, and so the more you do anything, the better you get at that thing. And the better you get, the faster you get. And the faster you get, the cheaper you get. And it really kind of happens in that order. And so for us here in Orlando, you know, I, I just actually I have a lecture coming up talking about learning curve and and, and what, how to set up, how you set yourself up for a successful practice in robotics. And it really has to do with uh, categorical buying. And you have to buy into the idea that you're going to do this. You have to have your why as to why you're doing this. Is it a ergonomics thing? Is it a patient outcomes thing? Is it a, is it a marketing thing? You know, what, what is the thing that's going to make that happen? 
And then, then and only then, once you fully commit to it, can you build the program around it. And that program can be built in a highly efficient, highly structured, highly reproducible manner, but it requires dedication from the surgeon, the faculty, him or herself, and also the surrounding team members, the circulating nurses, the scrub techs, the leadership in the, in the operating room. That's the only way that it makes sense. And, and, and to the cost point, there's no doubt, no doubt, that the robotic, op- for colorectal surgery, the robotic operation in and of itself does, yes, certainly cost a little bit more, usually around anywhere from three to $500 more per operation than when you compare it to a laparoscopic case. But if you look at the downstream effects of uh, able, you know, offering more patients minimally invasive surgery, reduced conversions, uh, able to offer more patients better and more minimally evasive type operations like intracorporeal anastomosis, uh, fully intracorporeal mobilization of, uh, uh, of, of, of um, sigmoid colectomies with splenic flexure takedowns and intracorporeal um, um, anastomosis of a left colon, for example, those patients end up translating to better downstream effects, lower hernia, lower readmission, lower ileus rate, uh, quicker length of stay, and so on and so forth. So if you look at the event of the operating room, yes, it's more expensive, no doubt. But if you look at the clinical outcome improvements that we've seen pretty much across the board, um, then it makes financial sense. It makes a lot more financial sense when you do it like that. And one other other Mm -hmm. point to bring up that there's robotics is expensive because of the maintenance contract as well. But if you do one case per year, then that whole maintenance contract for the year is distributed or diluted over one case. But the more cases you do, the less you dilute, or the more you dilute, rather, the maintenance contract. And so that's kind of how that, that ends up um, spreading the cost out a little bit more. Well, that's, that's very well said. And there's no question you need an entire program. I think that's the, that's the key term for Canadians that are listening to you know, or thinking about the prospect of a, of a, of a robot in their hospital. You know, we certainly have them up here on the urology side, intermittently on the gynecology side, but my experience was was similar to yours. When I did my HPB uh, fellowship, we were, you know, pretty well trained, felt pretty good about doing uh, even robotic whipples. But, you know, since being up in Canada, we haven't even attempted one of them. And there's a whole host of reasons why that is. And as you know, it's a very different economic model that's, that's quite siloed. So, for example, the OR budget is completely separate from the inpatient budget. Um, and they don't they don't cross over, unfortunately. It doesn't really follow the patient. I'm, I'm curious if you could outline those, maybe some of the challenges that come with the, the robotic approach to things. Um, you know, guys like you make it look so easy and elegant. And in my world, that would be Kendrick at Mayo, for example, superb. Uh, you know, he'll do portal veins like they, they look like uh, art uh, with a robot. But there is certainly some, some challenges as well. Could you outline those for us? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, definitely challenges with anything, and and I think that's um, usually in your first in, in the learning curve. I mean, the learning curve is is steep. The learning curve is steep, and I think that there's several studies have shown that the robotics colorectal learning curve is there anywhere from 35 to 45 cases, and and only once you get to like 45 cases are you starting to get you know decent, like you're you're sucking less, <laughs> if you will, and so that's a challenge because those learning curve cases they come at a cost. They come at a financial cost, an emotional cost. I mean, for, I mean, there's, listen, we're highly qualified, highly trained surgeons, and we humble ourselves 
in front of our staff, in front of ourselves, in front of our fellows or our fellow faculty members to do these cases. And it really takes, truthfully, I mean, an emotional hit on the surgeon and an emotional investment to do that. So that's that's a huge ask right there, a huge toll right there. Um, the other things, of course, you're going to have definitely have a drop in efficiency when you're starting out um, because you absolutely, it takes more time to dock. The team isn't there yet uh, in terms of the the, the the efficiency of the team, the, your efficiency in the operation uh, operating room is not nearly where, where it was probably in a lap or open case. So there's tremendous, um, uh, uh, tremendous challenges that are there. Um, but kind of like you're saying, like, you know, you know, you end up getting better um, once this is kind of your thing. And, um, you know, I'm sure that Dr. Kendrick, uh, when, when the hepatobiliary side of things, um, probably didn't start out looking looking like he did or, or she did. But the more that he or she did, the better he or she got. And those challenges that were initially there go away or at least are, are minimized to a certain extent. I'm not sure if that answered your question, though. Yeah, that's that's exactly dead on. I, I think that's uh, that, that's perfect. You know, the, the other two things I wanted to ask you with your massive robotic experience, maybe one a little bit more negative and one a little more positive. The, on the negative side, you know, the company that, that you mentioned, the, the sort of the premier robotic company, has a very interesting business model and is generally perceived to be extremely aggressive with regard to, you know, their reps and their and their interaction in general. And in some ways, I think that's sort of put off Canadians being maybe a little bit different than, than Americans in, in some ways. I'm curious if you would comment on, uh, on that, uh, the business model in general. And then the second part, really, uh, more optimistically, m- my sense is that this is a transition technology in the current platform that, that you know, you've become such an expert in. Where do you see robotics in general going in the future and that's you know maybe in 10 years and maybe in 20 years um i'm curious where a visionary like you uh sort of sees that future yeah i mean um you know i i think that you know talking about the um the business practices of a of of a company uh that um you know is kind of the major player in the market is I think it's a unique position to be in. I mean, you're effectively a monopoly, and um, you're you're it's it's. I think they're they're condemned to the uh, business practices that they I think they once had, and I hear horror stories of of how um, their reps used to handle hospitals pitting one uh, hospital system against another and giving access to one against an, not another just because of the way relationships were worked out. And I think that those, from I, you know, I was that the, all those issues, at least in the United States, predated my exposure, and so I've honestly had nothing but a positive experience in terms of uh, educational outreach, in terms of uh, scholarships and funding and grants uh, that we want to do in, uh, for for robotics training. Granted, it is it's it, the goals are aligned in that re- in, in that respect, um, but I think that. Um, I think that you know when you're a, when you're a you know a device company you're in the business of selling devices you're in the selling you're in the business of selling widgets and I think that um unfortunately just like any one of us the 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 weakest link in our um in our clinical practices is sometimes the medical receptionist that's answering the phones or greeting our patients and if that person is uh you know the least paid or 
you know, having the worst day that makes everything upstream or downstream, however we're going to look at it, look terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Um, but to that, um, uh, what was the second question? It was a good one. I forgot what it was. Yeah. I'm just curious where, where you see the future of all uh, this going. Yeah, Cause yeah. My, my, my sense is the current platform is, is truly a transition technology, despite yeah. how, how good it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I mean, what today, what are we doing? I'm doing basically, um, it's laparoscopy with wrists pretty much is what it is. I mean, if you distill it down, that's pretty much what we have right now. So you're exactly right. I do think, um, you said it well, transitional technology. And I think, you know, there's the, the, there are uh, iterations of robotic technology in the pipeline that I think the most dramatic thing that we're going to see different is that it's no longer going to be what's called line of sight technology where it's just between you and a straight shot to the pathology directly in front of you, that line of sight, the direct access, it's going to be more of a securitist route, something that will be more applicable to say endoluminal surgery or natural orifice surgery, where you can choose your extraction site as an example, and then, um, and then, you know, basically deploy a single, um, a single armed instrument that has multiple tentacles, almost like an octopus that can come out and do whatever operation that you'd like to do in whichever quadrant that you want to do intra-abdominally or intrathoracically or, or, or endoluminally, for example. So I think that's, that's one of the things that we're going to certainly see. I think that there's also going to be, I know there's going to be lots of machine learning uh, that has already been, it's in active development now between many of the robotics companies that are out that use pattern recognition uh, based on the operative um, video feed that you're seeing to alert you to, for example, no fly zones, no caution, don't go too far immediately because there's a ureter there or careful you're about to cut across the tumor edge or, oh my goodness, watch out, there's some hypogastric nerves there, you want to avoid that um, based on predetermined um, uh, algorithms that are built into the system. So that's stuff that's actively being worked on right now. Um, I can only imagine, say, for example, what another 10 years is going to look like. So I, I think that, like we were saying earlier, the, the future of robotics, I mean, we're definitely in the infancy right now. And I can only imagine what it's going to look like, um, you know, farther down the road. I mean, it's a really neat time, as you said, to be a colorectal surgeon and, and a surgeon in general. Um, it's particularly with regards to rectal cancer, because there's been so much changing uh, from treatment modalities to tools and technology like you outlined. Um, without belaboring this too much, I'm curious where you see um, all these sort of different tools like TATME, TAMIS, robotics, maybe even old school stuff like SILS. How do you, how do you see those technologies playing out and uh, and sort of uh, spreading? Do you, th- do you think they're complementary or distinct? Uh, sort of how do you foresee that um, uh, changing in, in the in sort of the landscape of of tools over the next few years. Yeah. You know, in, in, in my transition of jobs, I had the, the amazing blessing of being able to take two months off of work. And, um, and uh, I had a lot of projects around the house I want to get done. I had a lot of um, things I wanted to learn, a lot of books I wanted to read, a lot of trips I wanted to take. And one of the hobbies that I had been trying to pick up uh, was that of woodworking. And uh, it always fascinated me. You know, I love creating things with my hands. But one thing I immediately realized was that every single um, project requires a specific set of tools. Um, there's not a single tool that works for everything. 
And I think that that's a, an obvious corollary to just take one disease process, rectal cancer. So I think 100%, these are very complementary platforms. I mean, TATME has a fantastic place to be played. TAMIS, I, mean, I just did one today. TAMIS has a great role. I have a TATME combined robotic lower, lower interior section and TATME coming up the next Thursday, in fact. Um, and so I think that there are, as you're saying, with these different ranges of the new paradigms in rectal cancer and the new technology, I think that you really have to, as you do in woodwork, you choose the right tool for the right piece of wood or the right tool for the right job that you're trying to do um, and for, for that day now. TATME specifically is not something you can dabble in. That's a, that's a very unique skill set. It's a very, very unique and very confusing um, anatomical vantage point. So I, I don't want the those that are listening to this to think that you should just kind of dabble in TATME. But I do think that, again, to circle back to the original question, it is definitely a complementary uh, approach uh, for rectal cancer management. Yeah, I mean, I work with Carl Brown and, and the crew here and um, just watching them do some TM, TATMEs and, and getting involved a little bit, you realize it's not something that, that you can dabble in. But I, I really do, if I can make an editorial comment, I really do like your your thought that, that using the right tool in the right place is, is going to be so important going forward. And it just speaks again to being uh, the importance of having high volume so that you can really know what what tool to use when um, and, and, and know what technology would be best in a certain scenario. Um, I wanted to shift gears here a little bit and um, talk about your videos. And that was, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, tweeted that uh, to you before and, and I, I just love watching your videos. I, I watched them during residency and, and I still watch them now in fellowship they're just fantastically beautiful and we'll put some links in the in the show notes below so that people can go to your youtube channel and watch them for themselves but they're really quite beautiful can you talk a little bit about how you got into making videos of your colorectal operations yeah th thanks a lot for the kind words it's been a certainly been a labor of love and, and and honestly i think that the kind words that i hear from people i've never met before are, are the thing that really kind of helped me keep going on it um you know, it's an interesting story. I think the, the great things like that just kind of happen a lot of times fortuitously. Um, I was giving a, a course actually at the ASCRS several years ago. I was leading the um, the robotics course. And the challenge of the robotics course is we only have four hours to do a right colectomy and a low interior section. And I had previously gotten tired of telling my fellows the exact same anecdotes in the operative moment teaching of the same wristing maneuvers and teaching of the same exact, these are my instruments, this is what I do. So I recorded for my fellows a, um, a um, basically a course, a whole course on right colectomy and another course on low interior section. And then when I taught this course at the, uh, at the ASCRS uh, meeting, I think it was like 2016 or 15, something like that. Uh, I said, you know what, guys, we only have four hours to do everything. I want everyone to pre-watch these two courses uh, so that we don't waste any time with any didactics. We just got to go directly to the lab. And it was crazy how much positive feedback I got uh, from these private videos that I had created uh, at that course for my fellows uh, that I just anecdotally and accidentally out of convenience and almost out of desperation shared with the faculty at this ASCRS meeting that I started uncloaking them and publishing them. 
And then I really just kind of took on a life of its own. And a lot of things that I struggled with, I was like, you know what? No one ever taught me how to do a meter to lateral. Let me make a video on that. You know what? I've struggled with this so many times. I nearly, you know, I hate to say this, but I'll say it. I nearly killed a woman by missing this enterotomy. I never want anyone to make that mistake. Let me publish that video. And, and I felt like it's actually had a much broader reach than publishing it in any one uh, clinical journal. And so um, it's, been a, it's been a great uh, venue and avenue. And so I feel like it's been really a, a tremendous blessing for myself to be able to, to kind of put that and really just, it's really humbling to see that people actually watch it. <laughs> so I appreciate it. We interviewed another surgeon for the podcast who, who does the same things for his trainees. And, and what kind of baffled me after that conversation and, and talking to people like yourselves is, is actually why we don't do that more often. It's not like we don't have the technology to do it. Uh, even for open cases, um, you know, head-mounted cameras, light-mounted cameras, the, all these that technology exists. I'm, you know, I wonder why we don't do that more often and if you've, you have any thoughts about why that doesn't happen more often. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it's it's almost sad that you know we have more com- more powerful computers in our pockets nowadays that can do this type of stuff, and that we don't take more advantage of it. Um, you know, I, I think one of the main things is just bandwidth. Uh, at least for me, you know, I'd I'd love to just have a crew of editors sitting in you know with me and editing videos left and right all day. It's just you know it's just the realities of of clinical practices. You don't get, um, you, you know, you you get the touchy feely part of it. You're definitely helping people and helping a lot of people. In fact, doing do, making those videos and teaching that way. But I don't think that um, I, I don't think enough emphasis is placed on that uh, on, on on doing it. And there's not enough, I guess, uh, incentive to do it. Unfortunately, so uh, it really just takes a. It takes uh, initiative to, to in, in leadership to just start doing it and get it done. And I do actually applaud the ASCRS, the Society of American Colorectal Surgeons, uh, has um, the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons has really pushed heavily in this direction to allow the community of surgeons to create a video library to submit to the ASCRS, and they get a DOI, they actually get a, um, they get a publication from it. Um, so I, I hope that this is the beginning of a much um, brighter future for a video library and you know collaborative video sharing. Yeah, I I think a lot of journals are going that way, and ASCRS certainly has, has uh, done a lot of really cool work in in this uh, area as well. Um, one one thing I wanted to highlight um, about your videos was the fact that you really go over the anatomy. Uh, I like I really like you, you'll have these series of videos, and you'll you'll start by just like breaking down the anatomy and you uh, you even get these like nice animations that'll show the anatomy um, it'll sort of spin in 3d and really show you the the uh, relationships of, the, of different structures to each other things that like you know you you would assume that everybody would know doing these operations um, but isn't really explicitly taught and I, I wonder like what sort of made you do that and why did you focus so heavily on on the anatomy you know, I mean, it's it's funny because um, although you hit on the on the nail, oh, you hit the, you hit the nail on the head. It's um, you would think that it's taught, but a lot of people uh, can get through fellowship and residency and fellowship and and not really understand, you know, why we why do we make that incision right there? Like they're not really explicitly taught exactly the why behind some of these approaches and what it should look like. And and for me, the biggest issue was. 
I didn't know what good was supposed to look like in like in a robotic uh, uh, prep platform as an example. So for me, the biggest um, the biggest thing was also training my fellows. Like they just I, they knew of course basic anatomy, but they didn't know really that next level three dimensional uh, anatomy. You're taken through a medial plane, and 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 for me, it's a lot of just like I have to close my eyes and visualize the anatomy in 3D and and rotate things around. So that that video that you're talking about where it's uh, it was actually it's an app on my iPad where actually I'll zoom in and kind of rotate around and a, a telescope and you know peel layers of tissue back is it's kind of how I think especially in the operating room when I'm trying to basically detach and reconstruct anatomy in the operating room. So thinking in that way certainly helps and I was never afforded that uh, coming through uh, medical school or or residency or fellowship. I just I think that a lot of that not, not against the people that trained me, of course not. I think just the technology didn't exist at the time and it certainly wasn't available on, a, on like your iPhone or iPad. And so I, I feel like it almost, you know, that's how I think I have the tech, I have the, um, the, 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 um, the, you know, the desire to do it. Like, I think it's almost my obligation to let, let me share it that way then. Again, like w- one of the things I also really liked about your videos um, and, and many people have, have, talked about that i think even in the comments is that you're really specific and detail oriented like you need to retract the colon at this angle using this arm in this way and you know the way you're talking about it it sounds like a lot of this stuff was was self-taught was that just something that you you learned from trial and error and and i'm curious if making the videos actually maybe helped with that process a bit as well uh, when you're trying to explain it to your fellows and and just looking over your own videos uh, again, maybe that uh, did that at all help in your learning process? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know that that level of uh, nuance does not come from the operating room. It doesn't. I mean, you're you're not there long enough in the operating room. You you can't really. You're so intently focused on the uh, mo- the moment. You have a you have a patient in your in your hands right there. It's difficult to really reflect on what's happening in that moment because it's just so intense and that um that kind of that level of reflection that level of nuance and that level of uh, uh, refinement effectively happens purely by video review uh, which is why i'm such a huge proponent of it and, and honestly i kind of i almost accidentally stumbled on the video review and it was really I, I have to really credit um credit my you know my fellows for pushing me and um, that YouTube channel for pushing me to, to, to review more videos and, and watch myself over and over and over again, realizing how terrible I messed things up and how barbaric I looked in that um, dissection technique. And, you know, and I think it was, um, it was a culmination of many things. It was, uh, you know, presentations and requests and lectures and podium presentations and book chapters, uh, little things here and there that just allowed me time to privately uh, reflect on what I was doing in, in different operations, and and I and I keep reiterating that because um, being alone without the stress of um, a fellow being next to me or the nurses chatting next to me or the patient nearly dying, for example, or not dying, but you know, you know, per- person's life being in my hands, you're you're allowed to kind of just take a step back and really take a different vantage point of what you just did and how you can do it better next time, and that that growth mindset, knowing that today's Tuesday, I can be better on Wednesday, I can be better next Tuesday, I can be better the following Thursday. 
that growth mindset, I think, is critical in surgery. I think it's critical in life. And I think that the day that any one of us decide that we have made it and we're done and we have no more to learn is the day we need to retire surgery. Um, and, and I think that a lot of that retro, that um, reflection, that self-introspection, I think, came I mean, again, it's, it sounds crazy, but just a lot of came a lot. A lot of it came from me watching my own videos. I think that's really beautifully said. One of the things that you alluded to is how challenging it, it can be to make videos when you're a busy clinical surgeon and you're you're operating a lot and you have a hundred patients to see in a in a clinic, and and also when the incentives really, as you said, aren't there. Do you have any tips and tricks for making good operative videos? Like, do you record? all your all your operations and that's how you kind of get good footage um is is there someone that's dedicated to doing that like what are the mechanics and logistics of you recording videos uh, to make sure that you get you have good high quality videos to publish and to teach from yeah and that's a great question i mean so i mean from a technical standpoint there's a uh, um every uh, the the robot room in air quotes the robot room has the capability to record directly into the room on a hard drive into a like a centralized unit there so there's a sign every there's a it's universally known that 100% of my cases are recorded um so everyone knows before i even dock the robot like you guys ready to record so we record everything um and then practically what i do is um um you know, I was much better about this years ago where I would download every single video after every single case, watch that video back every single time um, on my laptop or whatever, and, and critique myself and do it that way. Nowadays, we have a platform called CSATS. And CSATS, uh, it's actually a company owned by Johnson & Johnson now that all my cases are automatically uploaded to the cloud, to the CSATS website, and then um, and so now I don't have to do anything to upload it. It's automatically uploaded. And then if I go and then and I do still literally watch every single one of my videos whenever I get around to it. Not not like, you know, I don't have a time to do it. It's just if I'm, you know, sitting at the house, I'm bored or, you know, if I'm you know, waiting on case turnover, whatever it is, I'll pull up a video and watch it in 5x speed. You, you know, fast forward to a part to the TME a rectal cancer case or ileocot pedicle takedown, whatever, right, colectomy. And I watched a specific part of the case because I remember I struggled here. I, you know, didn't know what I really, I didn't like how I did that. Let me look at, look at it back again. Let me watch it back again to see. And, and that was the time that I would do that. And so, but nowadays the workflow is if there's a specific thing that I want to do, like, for example, I did um, a robotic subtotal colectomy uh, with the uh, ascending colonic inversion anastomosis or Deloyer's procedure. Um, so that one is going to be a video, I think. I'm going to probably turn that into a video. So um, that's the specific thing that I want to show. I want to show the inversion technique. So I'm going to find the video. I'm going to dissect it down to that maybe 30-second clip of how I do the robotic inversion. How do I sew the, the anvil intracorporeally? How I do the anastomosis? And so there has to be a specific ask. And I think that's the most efficient way to do it as opposed to taking, say, a two-hour video or a six-hour, whatever it is, digest it down to this is the 30 seconds that I want to tell the story from. And and once I know what story I'm trying to tell, it's much easier to effectively tell the story by just clipping that small uh, bit of video out, trimming it up, narrating it, putting some um, putting some manuscripts and articles around it to support the discussion, and, and kind of take it from there. 
Yeah, it it is, I think, again, worth noting that a little thing like that, like having the video automatically upload to the cloud, again, just in full disclosure, like I have never used CSATs, um, but just the idea of having something seamless makes a lot of sense because even in my own attempts to try and record my own video, that is often a stumbling block when you really have to remember to get your own hard drive every time and make sure that someone presses record and getting it off the, the OR um, uh, computer sometimes can really be a challenge. You know, it sh- shouldn't be, but when you actually tr- start doing it, it often uh, can be a major stumbling block and barrier. How do you use video with your trainees now? Now that you've sort of built up a library, is it? Do you do you want? Do you get the trainees to watch video before they come into the OR, and then you review their footage as well? Like, tell us how you uh, um, use video with trainees. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um. It, during actually before fellowship begins, I, I have something called a robotics boot camp that I do for all of the fellows. And what that looks like is basically they they um, they go through um, uh, basic training, <laughs> which basically covers uh, docking. Um, specifically, there's a prescribed list of things that they end up doing. Uh, in fact, I have a YouTube video on that <laughs> about how to train, <laughs> how to uh, incorporate uh, a, a robotic training curriculum into your residency and fellowship. And, and part of that is uh, the, the first uh, little bit where you, before you even start, you're walking them through specific simulation modules, specific videos that they need to review, how I do this, how we do that. And, and in, within that kind of the preamble essentially to their fellowship, I say, these are the videos I need you to watch. Um, and these are the simulation exercises I need you to watch. And, uh, I, and I won't let you scrub into the case until these simulation modules are done. You have to score at least a 90% on it before you're even allowed into the operating room. And that gets their attention real fast. <laughs> and then um, uh, usually, for example, um, like, like if I had two, um, uh, two left colectomies or two sigmoids today, actually. Um, the fellows are extraordinarily motivated. I mean, these are some of the best fellows I've ever trained. And they they were reciting the 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 what I'm saying in my YouTube video in the operating like oh you're gonna do this you're gonna hold it at this angle so uh, they, it's become um, a, a prescriptive part of the fellowship curriculum um, both on the uh, the quote unquote mandatory side but it's really they're just kind of doing it because I think they, they, they it's it's helpful and then to to the second point about the videos how we incorporate it. Now, because all the videos go to CSATs, um, and even if they didn't go to CSATs, 100% of the videos get reviewed uh, for the fellows. And what that looks like is they they get sent off and uh, either, it used to be, I used to do all this by myself, but now CSATs has been able to offload this from me, is I would give each of the fellows a quantitative and qualitative score, quantitative uh, 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 score and qualitative feedback rather, about how they did in the operation, what tips and tricks I can offer them for the next uh, operation that they do. I make them ba- that watch their videos and we discuss it before uh, we, we basically go to the next case. Um, and so this is done I- informally, of course. Uh, usually it's kind of conversation on rounds or in between clinic patients or at the scrub sink. Uh, what do you think about last case? How'd you do? What do you want to do for this one? Because I know you watched your video. Um, you know, and so that's very helpful. And it, now the other side of this, though, is it's very clear that when fellows are not engaged and not invested in their robotics uh, um, progress and they don't watch their videos, 
there's a very clear deficiency that becomes incredibly apparent um, because they don't learn from the mistakes. Uh, they don't learn from the issues that they struggled on and on case, say, for example, two, and then their case, they're in case number 10 are still struggling with what they struggled in case number two. And so um, there's a there's a tremendous amount of onus that's placed back on the fellows um, to watch their videos, to watch my videos, to do the curriculum, to do the simulation. And if they don't, then then that's you know it's their um, it's their loss effectively. We we sort of jumped into this without really talking about CSATs. Can you tell us again um, uh, what what is CSATs and what are the, some of the other? You've talked a bit about um, the sort of the seamless way that they upload videos and and using it for review. But are there any other tools that uh, you use CSATs for? Uh, yeah, yeah. So so CSATs is it's a um, it was a startup out of Seattle, and basically what it is is they take they take operative videos. Um, and it's uploaded to um, the, the CSATs cloud, call it. Um, there's a crowd that's you know, that's not medical. They're not medically trained, but they're trained to judge your video and how it looks uh, from slickness and certain domains in terms of what's called a Gears score. And Gears is basically, it's an objective scoring system based on something called OSATs. And then the gear score is a rubric based on a one to five Likert scale. You can get a maximum score of uh, uh, 25, a minimum score of five. So it's one to five rating in five different domains for robotics uh, based on CSATs. Um, and so you get a, you get a crowd-based score um, nearly immediately based, based on how that operation, the entire context of the operation went. You get a second score from a, a blinded expert surgeon in your field uh, that doesn't know you and you don't know them. They're just watching the video. So you get a similar gear score that's usually coordinate uh, with the, uh, the, the crowd-sourced uh, score. And then the final thing that you get is qualitative feedback from two expert reviewers in your field. And those uh, expert reviews are saying, okay, I loved how you wristed around that structure. I love how you did this. I love how you did that. I didn't like how you did this. Try this on the next case. And then in addition, what you end up having is on the website is curated and edited videos from those expert reviewers showing, say, what good looks like, showing what like a, a 23 on the gears score for the, the total mesorectal excision look like. You got a 21, well, here's what a 23 looks like. And it's kind of machine learning that shows you the different videos um, uh, to, to really kind of help build up your, your repertoire, really show you what good looks like. Um, but that and that's, that's just a commercialized version of it. Same thing that we have though for free. Uh, on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, YouTube, uh, not so much on Instagram, but there's lots of social media outlets that do this uh, entirely for free. And there's other upcoming um, websites and apps that do the, the very similar thing, but it's not quite as seamless and structured, say, as CSATS is. You really uh, help motivate us to try and use these video aids in particular as teaching tools. And, and you're exactly right. Both you and one of our preceding bariatric guests, Scott Kimura, use them so eloquently, and they're such powerful teaching uh, devices and, and concepts. Um, yeah, we, we can't thank you enough. We're, we're, we're going to try and do better. <laughs> That's all we can ask for.